Hey, thanks so much for joining us for the New Life Brisbane podcast. New Life Church is one family, many churches, and we're located across Coolangatta, Brisbane, and Rabina. And we exist to simply see more people more like Jesus by planting and leading thriving local churches. You've joined us in a series we've titled Rhythms. And isn't it true that we all structure our lives in one way or another? And those rhythms we adopt, those habits we entertain are not just things that we do, but are all things that do something to us. In this series, we will be asking the question, who are you becoming? And together, we'll explore how our spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines can lead us to become more like Jesus. We pray that this message is a blessing. Good afternoon, New Life Brisbane. So excited to be here tonight. Um, I'm so excited to open up our Word of God. This is so much more echoey than Cool and Gatter, and that's a cool sound. Um, hey, I'm so excited to open the Word of God today and see what God might have to say through His Scriptures. Um, if you haven't met me before, my name is David Skembry, um, and I'm the, I get the joy of being one of the pastors down at Cool and Gatter. Uh, and I get the joy today of continuing our series in the in the um, rhythms. And, and with, rhythms is simple. It's something we start every year with to answer a problem that's happening all around us. It's a problem of a season where the season says this, well, a season that is obsessed with the what, and the what they're obsessed with is the what are we doing, the what are we achieving, the what will I do better this year. And, And as a church, we discerned that the call of God wasn't on an obsession with the what, but the call of God was in an obsession with the who, and with with perfect clarity, the who that we're becoming. And so we understand that if you want to um, know who we're becoming, we've got to look at the rhythms of life that we're living in that both form and deform us and consider both what we are currently doing and what it is that we could be doing to become the kind of people that God has called us to be. And so functionally, this series is pretty simple. The way we're doing it is not looking at the great big moments of Jesus' life and getting obsessed with the, the big and the giant and the, and, the, and the moments of splendor, but we're actually looking kind of, as a rule, at the moments between the miraculous. We're looking at the fabric and the foundations that Jesus seemed to do regularly and as he did them regularly, they gave him the shoulders or, or, or the, the, the formation to carry the remarkable ministry that he got to do for the vast majority, well, for the majority of his life. And so here's what we get to do today. We get to look at the story of Jesus. We get to look at the moment that he did it, and we get to look specifically at a rhythm that I believe molded the very orientation of Jesus's life. And, and this rhythm is called a rhythm of service. And if you're in this room or if you've been in church for any while, perhaps you hear me on the stage say something along the lines of serving and you cringe. And my hope today isn't that you would be anticipating or expecting me to tell you that you need to sign up for another church program. My hope is that what we might do today is talk about the absolute beauty of Jesus, of who he was and who he continues to be today in this world and how we may actually partner with him. But we're gonna dive into scripture. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna be reading John chapter 13. I'm gonna invite you guys to rise as we read the scriptures. And we're starting in verse one. It says this, it it was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, 
He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, well, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Well, then, Lord, Simon Peter replies, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Verse 12, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes, returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. How about you take your seats? I have to say, I absolutely love that you honor scripture in that way here. I actually think it's really cool. I'm going to bring it up in Kulangala because I think it's really cool. Hey, have you ever been in a situation where someone's been so generous, so kind, so concerning, so loving towards you that it's left you feeling kind of awkward? jarred and comfortable. Uh, let, let me give you an example. A couple of months ago, me and Ella were at a cafe on the Gold Coast, and we were, you know, sitting there doing some work. We got hungry. We thought, well, let's go and get some food. So we walk up to the counter, and there was a person in the line before, uh, in front of me who had just finished ordering. They turn around, and it just so happened of all the people in the universe to be somebody that I knew who I'd gone to church with once. And, you know, she's holding her little baby in her hand, and she's like, hey, how are you? It's so nice to see you. How's life? What's going on? Tell me what's new. And so I just begin answering her barrage of questions, and I'm like, I'm good, and she just cuts me off, waves her hand toward the baked good cabinet and, and the guy who was serving behind, and, and he looked shocked, and I looked shocked, and I think we were both thinking, what is she going to say next? And here's what she said. She said, anything you want. What were you in line getting? Let me get it for you. Anyway, here's the thing. If you don't know anything about Gold Coast cafes, and I'm going to say probably Brisbane cafes too, um, you pay a stupendous amount of money for a little piece of bread with some mushed up avocado on top of it. It is absurd. And so me and Ella had the same thought. And we thought to ourselves, there's no way we're going to make this mama holding her little baby spend 50 bucks on me and, and Ella uh, just being dumb and not going to Coles, buying some shopping and making it ourselves. And so, you know, I turned to Ella thinking she would reply wiser than me. And, you know, this lady had replied and had asked, what were you getting? And Ella's like, nothing. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, I don't think that was going to fly. So I looked at the menu, and I was like, um, just a drink, please. And so she bought us a drink, and me and Ella returned to our seats. But here's the issue. There was a problem. Me and Ella were still hungry. And so we didn't want to offend this lovely human being, and so we just said, look, let's just wait till she leaves. And once she goes, we will buy our food. And... Um, 
143,000 friends of hers came in one after the other. She must be the most popular human being I've ever met in my life. And without exaggerating, we sat there for two hours waiting for her to leave. It was absurd. And so withering and slowly dying, when she did leave, we dragged our bodies to the counter and bought our eggs, Benny, brunch, and it was delicious. Have you ever found the generosity of someone jarring? Sometimes when people show their concern and their kindness, it it hits different. It hits a part of our souls that's almost uncomfortable. As though what happens when people show kindness is what they're really revealing is how the kingdom of God and his kindness is so incongruent with what we've come to expect in society. My hope today is actually that we would not leave weighed down by this conscience-driven condemnation that we need to serve or else, or we need to serve to be or to achieve or to become the kind of person that you know Jesus will love. Rather, my hope is that today we would leave liberated with a joyful vision of what it might look like for us to sow our time and our talents and take our opportunities and allow God to sow them into the tapestry of the kingdom of God being woven into this world around us, or in simpler terms, my hope is that we might leave this place, right, with confidence that these hands, that these feet, that this mouth, that every single talent in this room is something God has given because he delights in the opportunity to use it to unhinge a little bit further brokenness from its hold on this world and in its place, replace that brokenness with a little bit more of his beauty. And that's exciting to me. And look, if we don't live with that, my hope is at the least, at the very least, we leave knowing the wondrous care that Jesus has for his people. And he has for the suffering and the sinner and every soul in this room. I know what you're thinking. That's a big call, what you want out of today. Big game plan. So how about we pray and we see whether we let the Lord kind of govern where we're going and uh, let him do some speaking. Father God, I thank you so much for your mercy. I thank you so much that God, you are so invested in this room, that there was never a moment in all of history, in all of eternity, where you ever considered not showing up today that this has been a room and a moment that you have decided since first you saw fit to decide a thing, that you would intervene to break chains and to draw your people further into the beautiful, wonderful acknowledgement of how kind and loving and gracious you are, that we would become the kind of people who are so obsessed with how wonderful you are, we can do little but overflow it into our communities and our worlds and to the needs that we have been blessed with the privilege and the power and the capacity to meet. I pray, Jesus, tonight, would you please stir by the power of your spirit, something fresh in us and in this room. We praise you that you are enough, Jesus. We praise you for the victory you got for us on that cross, Jesus. And in your perfect and beautiful and unfailing name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Verse four. So he got up from the meal. He took off his outer clothing. He wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I wanna give you some imagery here. When Jesus washing their feet, it's not like they're awkwardly kind of raising their leg onto something and Jesus is kind of standing up holding it. To put this in perspective, Jesus was on his knees before his disciples, washing their feet. And he came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? 
And Jesus replies, and I just love Jesus. He's like, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Or in other words, Jesus is like, Peter, 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 wait. I know you, I know your brain. Just think about the time I fed 5,000. Think about the time I quieted the storm. Think about the time I healed those lepers. Would you trust me today? I know you don't understand it. I know your brain is going real fast right now, but would you trust me? No, said Peter. I just love him. He's, he's a lunatic. He's so funny. And, and Jesus is like, slow down, horsey. Don't get ahead of yourself. I know, I know you don't get it. And, Jesus, and Peter just proclaims, no. He's so audacious. He's my favorite. Anyway, he goes, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. And in the most Simon Peter way possible, he does a 180 degree backflip and goes too far the other way and goes, oh, well then, okay, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answers, he's just so patient. Well, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean. Now, I don't know about you guys, I'm reading the scripture. I get caught up on all the wrong details when I'm reading the Bible. So I'm reading the scripture. I'm still thinking, ill feet, that's disgusting. I have no interest in being told by God I have to go ahead and wash somebody's manky, gross sock feet, right? And, and if you're in this room and you're a little bit more ordered than me, you're probably at the very least thinking, wow, that's crazy of Jesus. That's a big move. Why would he have washed their feet? It's still also kind of gross. And as we read the scripture, we actually see a bit of confirmation that, that it is shocking what happened here. You see, we actually get to Peter, and Peter exclaims his absolute detest, his absolute disdain, his absolute shock at the series of events. But what I want to point out is that culturally, his disdain had absolutely nothing to do with the act of feet being washed. You see, in their culture, it was actually a daily necessity and multiple times a day to wash feet. Just, just let, let's play, let's, um, let me paint the picture for you. You get up, you're all living in first century Israel, you know, it's whatever. You get up in the morning, you're dirty, so what do you do? You wash, you get in your bath, you get clean, you're sparkling. And then, you know, you put your Havanas, you put your Berks, you put your flip-flops on. You go out the front door, you start walking, and immediately, you know, sand starts flicking up under that gap, you know, that gross little gap that happens. And then you start getting dirt and grime. And then, you know, the sun is pounding on your face, so you start sweating. And so what's happening under your feet is this disgusting hogmosh of sweat and grime grime and feralness, and that is just gross. And so then your best friend Bob says, hey, you know, come over to my house. I'd love to host you for dinner. And you're walking through that front door. He looks at your feet. You look at your feet. You're both like, this is pretty gross. How did they solve this problem? They put a basin by the front door filled with water. And the role of a servant, and if there isn't a servant, woman usually, the wife usually, they will come. They will kneel before you. They will take your feet, and they will clean off the dirt clean off the grime, clean off the sand, clean off the sweat, until you're finally in a fit state to enter their house. You know, for Peter, it wasn't the feet washing. It was the feet washer that was shocking. For Peter, it wasn't that feet were being washed. It was the one who was washing the feet that shocked him. You know, it, it, it appears that the kindness and the concern of Jesus was so countercultural, even to Peter, even to Peter, that he was so jarred by the moment where Christ revealed what it looks like to not be filled with the ways of the world. And yet I don't know about you, but when I look at the context of Christ's life so far, I don't think it's very scandalous at all what Christ did. 
I see actually a continuous rhythm of Christ over and over. I think this is uh, emblematic of the vast mercy and the concern and compassion that Christ's ministry is summed up in, in a moment. And he uses this moment to teach something beautiful to his people, to his disciples, and to the long family of believers to follow, which includes us. You see, I, I, I don't think it's that unlike Jesus to serve. I don't think it's that unlike Jesus to care and humble himself. In Matthew 15, it, it talks about great crowds of suffering people that, that, that came to Jesus. And, and to put this in context, put some perspective, what this means is that a bunch of people had heard the news that there was a person who in the midst of their defeat and hurt and pain, they were mute and suffering and going through all sorts of tribulations. They had heard rumors, they had heard a noise, they had heard a story that there was a man who cared enough to care and stand for them in the gap and present a solution to the need they faced. And it says in the scriptures, great crowds struggling, you know, mute and ill and sick and going lame and disabled and all sorts of things come to him. And what does Jesus do? One by one, it says he healed them. He healed them. I don't know about you, but when I see lots and lots of things, I stop noticing those things. I stop noticing those things. You know, if we see lots and lots and lots and lots of suffering people, I don't know how it happens. And the first one makes my heart want to weep. But by, you know, seeing enough of them, it's like some part of my soul goes hard and I've justified not looking at them anymore. And yet when great crowds of people suffering come to Christ, somehow he resists the urge towards apathy. And in its place, he, he, he wears, he bears, he clothes himself in approachability. And he cares for them. You know, Matthew 11 tells us that he had literally gained this reputation as a friend to sinful and outcasted people. That those discarded by society had heard about a guy called Jesus who they were actually safe in the hands of, that the people who, who the whole and the elites and the best in society had said, we want nothing to do with you, they could go to this man, Jesus, a rabbi in first century Israel, and he would welcome them and say, come have a coffee with me. And somehow in the midst of their status as outcasts, they would be safe to sit with him and feel welcomed and loved and blessed. He had become, he had gained a reputation for being a friend to sinners. You know, where he could, as God himself, chosen judgmental and shame, uh, being judgmental and shaming, instead what he chose was genuine love. So we have this Jesus who sees the needy and he steps in and he serves. We have this Jesus who doesn't make sure you can pay him back or you can achieve something or be something or, or, or reach a certain status to him before he will step in. But rather we have this Jesus who sees the lowly and then says, no, I will step in. Friends, that's really, really good news to us because it tells us something about who Jesus is. Friends, if, if you've come into this room today and, and you kind of feel like you, you keep stuffing it, you feel like you're at that place right now where you're like, I, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go forwards. I'm bearing so much shame and I'm bearing so much hurt and I'm bearing so much pain. I feel like every time God says, go right, I go left. I feel like every time God says, you can do it, I just don't. You feel like you're the one who always fails. You're the one who will never succeed. You're the one who doesn't have the answers, my friend. Jesus looks to you and says, my friend, my friend, come. Should we just sit together? Let me serve you. Let me love you. What a remarkable, remarkable character Jesus has. It goes on in Matthew 25, and, and it teaches about a Jesus at his most glorious state. The only time in all of scripture that Jesus calls himself king. 
And he sat in this glorious throne. And he's in this moment of judgment where he has all the power and everyone's at his mercy. And what he does in that moment is he calls the people with needs, the people who have been been in poverty and in bondage, who have faced bodily ills, who have been discarded from their homes or lost to prisons or sickness or anything else, and he calls them his brothers and his sisters. See, he takes the moment to stoop down from his privileged throne to personally serve, step in and fight for the unseen, the unheard, the uncared for, and the ones who feel unloved. That is our Jesus. His life was characterized by cultivated rhythms of swapping apathy for approachability, exchanging judgment for genuine love, and replacing his privilege with acts of service. This is who our Jesus is. And friends, this should be so significant to us today. Not least of all because there are so many suffering people all around us in the world. Not least of all because it's not hard to go out and see people hurting and wounded and in pain. Not least of all because suffering has evolved and there is all sorts of new things we face that perhaps weren't even as bad back then as they are today. There is an epidemic of mental health crisis amongst people of all ages. We are losing ourselves to loneliness. We are becoming caught up in all sorts of fear-filled polarizations. We are absolutely crushed under the weight of all sorts of uh, threats of, of society, these economic downturns, corona virus, Ukraine and Russia, so many things in this world, not least of all because suffering and the suffering exist all around us today. But also because Jesus, who is God, in his most natural state, the God of the universe, King of kings, Lord of lords, the one who came up with every flower and tree and fruit and color and texture, everything you've considered, he, he came up with that. The one who decided and desired that goodness should exist and went forward with the power to make it exist. The one who is in charge of everything that exists and everything that could ever exist in his most natural state is bent towards care and concern. That is our God a God bent towards compassion, even in his greatest glory. My friends, do you know that today? Do you know that God cares for you? Do you know that God cares for you? And if you came through Kids Church, you're probably nodding, but here's what I wanna point out, not the tagline, do you know that God cares for you? In the midst of what you're walking through today, do you know that God cares for you today? What a tender and beautiful God we have and we get to serve. Verse 12 goes on. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher, which really just means this, one you trust to tell you what is true. You call me teacher and Lord, which just means one you trust to give instruction, to direct your steps. And rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And friends, I wanna point out, this example he set is not the one time he decided to wash someone's feet. Again, look back to the reputation Christ had. Look back to the ministry recorded that he did. This is three years of ministry of nonstop being there and available for the people in all of their wounds, in all of their suffering, and saying, you are worth stopping for. And boy, do I wanna help you. 
This is the reputation of Christ. This is what he calls us to imitate. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are God's handiwork. You know that phrase, handiwork, it's actually a craft term. It's a term used to describe something made. It's, it's, a, it's, a work that, it's a word that could be translated to masterpiece. It is something that you would make and be so proud of, you'd hang it on your wall. You know, I went to um, that paint and sip thing one time. I painted something. I would not hang that on my wall. I'm just being honest, right? But here's the thing. What God crafted out of you is something he wants to put his signature to, something he's proud of. You are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And Ephesians goes on to say, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining in the whole measure of the fullness of God. Or in other words, one part of what it is to be formed as a masterpiece according to God is that you and I have been crafted with certain talents and certain gifts and abilities and spiritual blessings and physical inclinations that God himself gave us for the blessing of one another, the blessing of the church and overflow as a blessing to the world. One part of you being a masterpiece is that God has made you able to do something that will rock the pillars of eternity. In 1920, there was this young lady, her name was Betty Green, and she was born in Seattle. And from a young age, she was just fascinated, obsessed with airplanes, with flying. She was insane. And she managed to do something absolutely crazy. By the age of 16, and before I tell you, like, think back to when you were 16 and all your achievements. I've, I did this, I played this, and thought, wow, I had done nothing. So uh, by the age of 16, she had managed already to acquire her pilot's license in a day in age, you know, in the early 1900s, where women weren't really celebrated in aviation, she stepped up against that and said, I'm passionate about this. I'm doing it. And by the age of 16, had become smart enough and skilled enough to get licensed to fly an airplane. But there was a problem. In her heart, she also knew that she should serve God. And she felt this wrestle in her soul. Do I serve God or do I do what I love? And she thought, you know what, I'm gonna lay down what I love and I'm gonna try and start serving God. And so she tries all of the methods that society said were normal for a woman of her station to do to serve God well. And one of the things she did, for instance, was she started studying a bachelor's of nursing and two years in, she said, nope, not for me, drops it, right? Because there was some echo, some phantom, some whisper inside of her soul that kept her stirred and passionate, passionate about flying airplanes. And she just couldn't shake it. And then World War II came, and she was called on to serve, not on the front line because she couldn't at that time, but she flew in support positions, test flying new technology, teaching pilots how to fly, ferrying things backward and forward, and she loved it. And what she came to this conclusion was, was that somehow, and she didn't know how, her love of flying absolutely had to marry her passion to serve God. She was like, I love flying airplanes and I want with my whole life to serve God and I've got to find a way to marry those two passions together. 
So after the war ended, she pioneered a, pioneered a movement called MAF, a movement that still exists today. I met someone this morning after preaching this who had literally done work at an MAF camp in Papua New Guinea. And, and, and so she still exists and is doing good work today. She pioneered this movement so that she can fly airplanes that take missionaries to places in the world that were otherwise inaccessible or extremely dangerous to get to. And as a consequence of her learning how to marry her time and her talent and her opportunity to her passionate desire to serve God, the gospel has now been preached in places in Mexico, in Peru, in Nigeria, countries around the world that would otherwise have never heard the gospel. Cities around the world right now exist with, with churches on them that are thriving and owe their origin to a woman who said, I am passionate about something and I'm passionate about using it for God and I believe I can find a way to do those things well together. I wonder what talents and opportunities are in this room. I wonder what passions and giftings are in this room. I wonder what beautiful parts of God's body, the church, are sitting here and without you today, stepping in in a new way, stepping in with that talent. The body is a little less functional. But maybe in this room you're not sure. You're not sure what your giftings are. Perhaps you've served before and you feel hurt, burned out. Perhaps you're young and and you think, I don't even know how to start serving God. Who's gonna take me serious? Perhaps you've grown older and you think, my time has come, it's gone, no one's listening to me anymore. I wanna let you know whether you know your talent or you don't, whether you're hiding from your talent or chasing it and struggling tremendously. That's okay. You are his masterpiece. And that passionate talent and gifting and spiritual blessing that he has imbued within you is still a part of what makes you that masterpiece. And God has a beautiful plan if you would trust him to use that to do uh, world changing. And I mean that in the eternal sense, the, the worlds of human beings would be transformed because you've been alive and chosen to trust God with what he's put in your hands. And that is powerful. You know, as the story concludes, Jesus is remarking on the titles his followers have given him. They call him teacher and Lord. And he affirms that that is who he is. He is our Lord. He is our teacher. He is the one who can direct our steps. And he is the one who knows more beautiful reality, more beautiful truth than we do. And we should listen to him. He is our Lord and he is our teacher. And friends, that is good news, right? Like, let's just be real for a minute. I have not listened to God and I have not learned from God in many, 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 many moments of my life. I probably am doing it in many, many moments of my life or today and I'm not even sure, right? Like here's the thing, there are many, many moments throughout our lives where we haven't let God be king and we haven't let him be the teacher and we have seen damage. We have seen that thing, that formation we talk about, but in the opposite way, deformation, destruction, hurt and brokenness, things that have robbed us of our happiness and stolen us from our ability to live the way God has called us in the thriving and beautiful way he crafted us to live. Because friends, there are rhythms that bring life and there are rhythms that bring death. I really, it's so vital that we know that. The, the, the gospel, the Bible, it doesn't shy away from the fact that how we use our time and how we use our talents and how we use our opportunities has the power to form or deform the way and the quality of the life we live. In Jesus' name.
And it's a really good thing that not only is it true, but Jesus said, hey, would you let me be the Lord and teacher? Would you let me be the one who guides you down the rhythms that lead to life? Would you let me be the one who leads you by the hand with immense amounts of grace and says, just come, just come. I, I actually know which way to go. Would you let me guide you? Like what a beautiful thing that he is our Lord and teacher. What a beautiful thing that he has got us in his hands. Friends, our gifts and our time and our talents and our opportunities are so important to God and we need to come to a place where we trust that the kingdom of God will be better when we step in to the faithful call of God and our lives. So simple, Jesus served, it's who he is. He serves because he wants to see blessing come wherever he goes, why? Because he's good and where good goes, good follows, right? Like that's the reality, Jesus serves. Jesus has called us to partner, to imitate, to go with him, Lord and teacher. And he has crafted us as his masterpiece for that with all sorts of talents and opportunities and time and whatnot, right? So what do we do? How do we serve? How do we land this, right? Do we, uh, I don't know, make like a Betty, sell all we have, go get an airplane license, get the theology degree, preach the word of God? Is that what every one of us should do? I don't know, but let me say this. If you feel a press on your soul to get your pilot's license, to go and get a theology degree, and to go and preach the gospel with the rest of your life, go. Have some good conversation with people first. But here's the thing, go. Because God will do remarkable things with your life. That's true. But perhaps also you've been called to stay, to love your families, to be ministry in your workplace, to be caring to all sorts of suffering and wounded needs and suffering people in the society today. Stay, because you will be blessed and you will do, God will do remarkable things in your life in that. So how do we serve? Serving one another, it actually doesn't have to be crazy. It's not a go to the mountaintop, sell everything, you know, feed the homeless, and when you run out of money, you'll probably die of starvation, but that's okay, you did some good things kind of thing, right? The reality is the feet washing wasn't unusual. It's not like he's saying, go and be extreme. Feet washing was extraordinarily normal. What was shocking was the one who laid away his privilege to do the feet washing. I wonder today what ordinary needs are existing all around us in our very lives today that we are simply expecting someone else to meet. But just as easily, any one of us could stoop down, lay down our privilege, and in its place, pick up a burden. Perhaps there are people around us who could, we, we could make a rhythm of visiting once or twice a week people who have no one else, people who experience loneliness, which I wanna make this clear. If you think people aren't experiencing loneliness, I just wanna burst that bubble. It is one of the most tremendously destructive things that people all around us are facing is this sense of isolation and it's ruining people's hearts and expectations and happiness. And friends, if the simple rhythm of serving we make is to say, I'm gonna take once or twice a week, you know, and I'm just gonna go and visit someone who no one else is gonna visit and I'm gonna love them, that is a beautiful and powerful way of serving the kingdom of God. But perhaps there's a ministry uh, like fishers and men that look after the homeless. Or perhaps you have ministries that look after foster kids or, or refugees. And we could volunteer, you know, once or twice a fortnight. And we could help the least fortunate among us. Or perhaps you have in your hands and in your heart talents of worship or of welcome. That this very room would be remarkably blessed if you were to step out and choose to use those to bless this very congregation over some rhythm throughout a year. Friends, the first thing we learned from our teacher and our Lord 
is that rhythms of serving can be as simple as finding the needs in front of us and contributing something. Rhythms of serving are about sustainable habits of care. That's it. What a blessing it is that Jesus isn't telling us all to get theology degrees, become preachers, and serve him right now in that way. What a blessing it is we're not all called to go and feed the homeless because who will look after the refugees? Who will look after everyone else? You know, this is the reality of Scripture. Christ says every single one of us have a calling and a gift, and together as a family, the world and the kingdom will be blessed. What a beautiful thing. The second thing we learn from our Lord and our teacher is that though we are each imbued with immense weaknesses and Christ does not shy away from this reality, we have this sense that we are weighed down by responsibilities, by commitments, by life, and these limitations are real. The truth is they don't actually swing as easy excuses. And that's heavy. Because here's the thing, Jesus is well aware well aware that serving is not always easy and simple. He's well aware that sometimes it costs us. That sometimes we feel short on time. We find it hard to act. We find it harder still to engage when we know it's going to get messy and cost us. But I want to point something out. In verse 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Friend, in this room, If your reason for not serving is because you feel you're short on time, I'm just gonna put this out there honestly. Jesus was shorter on time. He had a night and a short trial, and that was it. But still as busy and as short of time as he was, he chose to start this night by continuing and pressing in to the rhythm he had formed throughout his life of prioritizing serving someone else, esteeming someone else above, as opposed to esteeming himself above them. He said, I'm gonna continue as I've done so far. I will stick to my rhythm of loving another person. Jesus was short in time. And it presses on saying that Jesus uh, loved the friends that he had. And feeling that love, he chose to express and show the tangibility of the love. I wonder in this room, have you ever walked past a homeless person, for instance? I remember when I was very young, I was in England. I was um, walking to a cinema or something, I don't know. um, And and there was a homeless person in front of me. And and I was just like stumped. I I don't think I'd ever seen a homeless person before. I'd heard about them, but I was young. I'd never seen one. I wasn't raised in the city. And I was like, mom, what the heck is this? Like, let's do something. And I was like, mom, it's, it's funny that I say this, like I'm a hero, I didn't cost me anything. But I was like, mom, give him some money. Mom, buy him a sandwich. And in the end, mom being wiser than I was did, she in fact bought him a sandwich and we could keep moving. But I wonder, I wonder how easy it is sometimes for us to see the suffering of the needy, to be filled with compassion and then to step over and keep walking. How can it be as easy as it is? 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse four, it says love is patient and love is kind. And that word kind literally translates to instigating an act of kindness. It's not just a, oh, they're there. It's a, I see the burden. Let me help carry it. That is what the kindness of love in the Bible looks like. And three, the context goes on. You know, perhaps instead of feeling compassion when we see the suffering, what we feel is cautious uncertain. We feel a sense of the weight of what it would mean to bless this person. Perhaps we know that the messiness of humans and the burden that caring for others is, and we know that if we decide to care in that way, the burden will be on us, and it's going to be hard. Friends, Jesus was in the company of a friend 
who was about to betray him. He was under a literal, not like an Instagram literal, I mean a real, literal, spiritual attack from the devil himself to undermine and put an end to all the goodness God wanted to pour out through Jesus in the world. And Jesus had a response. It says in verse four, three, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he, Jesus, had come from God and was returning to God. You see, Jesus responded to the difficulty of serving, not by, with, not by making genuine and good reasons for not doing it, but by turning to the Father who had called him to serve and saying, I know who I am in you, and I know all the ways you've strengthened and blessed me, and I know that your call is for me right now to be with you, and I know a day is coming where I will be perfectly safe in the hands of you forevermore. That's how Jesus responded to the suffering and the threat of difficulty when it came to the cost of serving. Amidst the difficulties of serving, we look to our Lord and our teacher, and what we see is the context from which he calls us to follow. If our Lord did it with little time, friends, so should we. If our teacher chose to turn love into action, so should we. If Jesus chose to face the messiness and the burden of serving by deep intimacy with God, we should endeavor to do the same. There's a quote by a guy called Scott McKnight that goes like this. Those who aren't following Jesus aren't his followers. It's that simple. Followers follow. And those who don't follow aren't followers. To follow Jesus means to follow Jesus into a society where justice rules, where love shapes everything. To follow Jesus means to take up his dream and work for it. Perhaps in this room, you don't know what the dream of Jesus is. I would love to share a little tinsy bit of what it looks like, the dream of Jesus. Jesus has a dream to see life abound, to see freedom as tangible, to see addictions come to die, to see oppression begin to cease, to see harmony in all communities and prosperity abound over all the church. Only, only his kingdom will bring an end to the injustice that we face every day and instigate a way of living that breeds joy and love and faithfulness and peace and hope into our world. Only his kingdom, he and his ways will see that reality. And I wonder today if you would respond to the beckons he has made by partnering with him today in this place. I wonder if you would let Jesus' dream today become your dream. I would wonder today if you would let Jesus' way seep into your ways today. I wonder if we could use these rule of life books that were handed out last week and will be handed out again this week. I wonder if we could flip uh, at some point to the page that looks like this. I wonder what it would look like for us to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and consider rhythms of serving with the gifts we have, the needs of the people all around us as something worth making as, as daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, and annual habits, rhythms, and cycles. I wonder today whether we would be like Peter and let ourselves be shocked once again by the humility and the care of the foot washer of our Jesus. 
Because you see, my friends, Jesus did not just set an example for serving and then leave. He did not just call us to partner with Him and bounce. He did not, friends, just give us gifts and say, go nuts. My friends, for Jesus, serving was not just another rule that you have to follow to be good. For Jesus, serving was something He took in His whole life and poured out for all the world and for all the people that He would die, that every single person in this room could find their life in Him. For Jesus, serving was not something that you just do. It's something you do with your whole life. It's something you become through rhythms of service, absolutely softened in the heart by the suffering of the people around you, absolutely torn to shreds by the wounds and the hurt of those we encounter, absolutely motivated and stirred by the dream Jesus had for what society genuinely could begin to look like in churches of people pouring their gifts out to serve. Friends, for Jesus, serving was not just another thing to do. It was something he did with his life until he died doing it. And in that, today we get the privilege of knowing Jesus, of experiencing intimacy with Jesus, of being known by him and welcome into his hands, into his love, into his mercy, failures as we are, as lowly as we are, as needy as we are, as glorious as he is. He looks upon us with soft eyes today and says, you, every single one of us are careful. I wonder today whether we could experience how shocking it is the way Jesus served and let it flow from us, just a tinsy bit emanating as we taste it, let it flow out of us into the world around us, to our workplaces, our communities, our church, and this world. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that you are not God who has quit on loving and caring and serving your people. That in this room we are just a collection of believers with absolutely no idea what we're doing 90% of the time. But what we know is that you are a good God who genuinely cares, who genuinely fills the gap, who genuinely wants to be involved in our life, who genuinely says, no, no, I don't just love you. I like you. I am your friend. Come and sit with me. Jesus, would you show us right now how to taste the wondrous servant-heartedness that you have? And in this room, if we feel convicted or stirred or struggling because we don't know what the gifts are, or perhaps we do and we don't know how to start, oh Jesus, would you begin to to minister to our hearts? Would you unravel eyes to see how they've been called? Would you soften hearts to take a next step in our calling? Jesus, thank you for the blood that you gave to us on that cross, serving us in such a beautiful way. I pray in this room, if there are people who have never met you and never known you, that right now, holy God, they would turn with soft hearts and say, I don't know anything, but Jesus, if you're half of what he said, would you come and meet me today? And I pray, Jesus, that people would be encountering you for a first time today. Lord, I'm so excited and I pray that we would have a vision for what it would be to be the kind of community that is filled to the brim and bubbling over with passionate hunger to reflect even an iota of the service you gave every day. Help us form rhythms of serving, Lord. Jesus, in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen. How about we respond with worship? Would you stand? Thanks again for listening to The New Life. 
podcast. Hey, if that stirred something within you or you'd like prayer for anything from one of our team, you can contact us at hello at church.nu or you can reach out to us on our Instagram or our Facebook page. Pray that you have a great week. Be blessed.